Psalm 46, and really looking at this one particular verse, uh, Psalm 46:10, "Be still and know that I am God." And well, the pattern we're going is we're taking this old, this ancient approach to prayer that uses this verse as kind of a starting point, and then it drops off a word or a phrase at a time as you walk through the, the sentence. And so be still and know that I am God, just this way of, of being still and coming into the presence of God. And then, and then you drop one word off, so be still and know that I am, and then, and then be still and know, and then be still and then be. And it's just this way of quieting your heart into the, into the presence of God. But, but I found that it's been a great entry point into learning some, some really great things about God and, and who we are in relationship to this God. And so last week we talked about the whole sentence and we put it right down in the middle of Psalm 46 and we learned that be still and know that I am God, that there's this particular kind of God that we're supposed to be still and know, that this God is for us and this God is a refuge and a strength and a fortress and a shelter even if the whole world seems like it's coming apart, in that moment, especially in those moments, God is for us a refuge and a strength and a shelter and a fortress. So we talked about that last week. This week, uh, we're talking about, we're dropping that word God off and we are uh, talking about this phrase, be still and know that I am. I am. It's an incomplete sentence by itself, isn't it? I put a p- period there, but we know we've dropped a word off. And, and that's natural and normal for us because any of us who grew up and went to school and went through our elementary class know that there is this verb, and it's a booger of a verb. Uh, it's the verb to be, uh, be. And it's one of those irregular verbs. And we have to learn how the, all the declensions of this verb go. So if it's first person or it's second person or it's third person, I see some students down here, you guys working through this, right? So uh, you're second person and you've got all the tenses is past, present, and future, and you've got, is it plural or is it singular? And, and we know that this verb that's trying to get at existence, right? It's trying to get at uh, the is of the world, which is one of the ways that to be is, is, is translated, right? Uh, one of the declensions of it. it. It is one of those words that never stands on its own, it always is a bridge to something else. So there's, a, there's an object of a sentence and then there is the verb to be and, and you never find a period there. There's, there's always a direct object after I am. So I am hungry. I am tired. We are worshiping together. You are brothers and sisters to me. Like you, you remember all these and you had to chart them out and like all these different kinds of ways that we, we diagram sentences and everything. And, and the verb to be was always leading to something else, some other descriptor of the object of that sentence. So we're not used to seeing just that phrase, I am. And yet, in one of the most intriguing stories in the whole Bible, we see that phrase, I am, standing all by itself. And it communicates so much depth and truth that it almost just blows my mind this morning. So we find that story in Exodus chapter three, and many of you guys will be familiar with this. And this is gonna be a great story, by the way, a great message just to have your Bible open in your lap or open up your phone app, which is what I'm gonna do today, and, uh, and have your Bible open to Exodus chapter three. 
And we're going to work through this story. Now, it's the story of Moses and the burning bush. And before we get into that story, we kind of need to know a little bit of background. And the background is important. See, Israel, uh, several generations, hundreds of years before Moses came around, was this small little band, this, this group of Hebrew people, Abraham and his children, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the grandchildren and all that kind of stuff. And, and at one point, there was this severe regional famine that went through the land. But God had prepared and had sent Joseph to Egypt, who was one of the Hebrew people, had sent Joseph to to Egypt to prepare Egypt to be ready with all this extra food for all the people in the surrounding area so that they could come and be cared for during the famine. And so Abraham and all of his descendants end up moving to Egypt. And then over the several hundreds of years that they're there, over the 400 years they're there, They marry, they have kids, they have more kids and more kids and more kids and marry again and and just on and on down the line until the point where they grow up and there there are a lot of people in this nation of Egypt. At some point along the the way, they become servants and, and even slaves to Egypt. They become cogs in the wheel of a part of the Egyptian building programs that you've all watched on the History Channel, right? And they're, they're making bricks and they're doing all these things to try and support the pharaohs and support the people of Egypt. And then over time, the Israelites, the Hebrew people among the Egyptians become so big and numerous that the pharaoh at the time looks around and says, I could have an uprising on my hands that I wouldn't know what to do with. There's so many of these. And so Pharaoh issues this population control measure to have several of the children who are born killed immediately when they're born. And so all these baby boys are supposed to be killed. And, and there's one, though, who slips through the cracks. There's a couple of, of disobedient midwives, Hebrew midwives, that get in there. And, and they, uh, they deliver this child, and they hide him. And then, and then Moses ends up getting put into a basket and sailed down the River Nile as a baby. And then he is found by Pharaoh's daughter, pulled out of the Nile, brought into Pharaoh's household, uh, finds a wet nurse for him who happens to be his own mom. And then, and then Moses grows up, it's this incredible story, grows up in Pharaoh's household, right? Learns all the Egyptian ways, learns every, all these things, grows up in Pharaoh's household. And then as Moses grows up, he recognizes that he isn't actually an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. And one of the days he's out in the, in the, the work sites and he sees one of his own people getting mistreated and beaten by an Egyptian slave driver. And, and he just snaps. He's overcome in this fit of rage and he kills the Egyptian right there. Then he immediate, like, what have I just done? Buries the Egyptian in the sand and recognizes my life here is over now. If anybody saw me do this. So he, he runs out. He gets out of Egypt as fast as he can, finds his way to a land called Midian, out in the middle of nowhere, meets a wife, has some kids, becomes a shepherd, and, and starts to look like Charlton Heston, you know, in the movie that you see. I mean, just that, it just starts carrying a staff, the whole nine yards. He is Moses now, you know, the one that we know. And so he spends like 40 years out there in the wilderness of Midian, tending to sheep, trying to not step on, you know, sheep poop and finding grass and finding water and all this kind of stuff. Like this is Moses' life out in obscurity until one day, God had heard the cries of his people rising up to him. They were suffering as his slaves. 
And he listened to them and he was concerned for them and he decided to do something on their behalf. And so God goes on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and meets Moses there. And that's kind of where we pick up our story. Moses is, is walking along, tending his sheep, trying to find a place to be. And out of the corner of his eye, he catches this bush that is burning, right? Which, you know, I guess that's not crazy, but he sees that this bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. It's not being burnt up. It's just on fire. And so Moses does something that's really, really critical. When we catch a glimpse of something that we see might be something beyond, something supernatural, that he turns aside. He stops what he's doing for just a minute, it takes, and that's a whole other sermon, right? But he, he turns aside and he says to himself, uh, there's this bush. And it's burning and it's not being consumed. So I'm going to go over and check it out and see why this bush is burning, but it's not being burned up. And this is where we're going to pick up uh, the scripture here in verse 4, Exodus 3, 4 through 13. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? It's a good question, really. It, listen, God, this is like objection number two of five or six that Moses has. God tries to tap Moses on the shoulder and says, you're the guy. You're going to go back and help me bring my people out of, of Egypt. And Moses' first objection is, are you sure you got the wrong or the right guy? Uh, who am I? Like, and, and God says, well, I'll be with you when you go. And, and so the second question, Moses has got several more, but the second one is, okay, well, let's say I do go back to the Israelites and say, so your God sent me to you. And they say, what's his name? What do I say? What do I tell them? You got to remember that Moses grew up again in that, in Pharaoh's household. And, and anybody watch the History Channel shows about Egypt? Am I the only guy that, that does those? 
Seriously? Okay, you, who does back here? Thank you very much. Uh, Natasha watches those too. So Natasha, I'm talking to you right now. You remember those, uh, those History Channel shows where, where you learn about all of the gods of Egypt and all the, the kind of the way that they worshiped and everything. Moses grew up in this household where there were gods for everything, right? And all these gods have different names. So there was Atum-Ra, the god of the sun, and there was Geb, the god of the earth, and there was Isis, the god of love. And I actually did a Wikipedia search. I don't normally do a lot of the Wikipedia research, but, but I did one this week and found that, I mean, there are like 150 different gods. There's a god for everything in the Egyptian culture. He lived in this world and grew up in this culture where there were gods for every little thing. So if you needed your crops to grow, you cried out for this God. If you needed delivered from Egypt, you called on this God who did that sort of thing. If you needed a baby, you called on this God for that sort of thing. And, and that was kind of the world. That was, in fact, it wasn't just Egyptian culture. That was the whole world. It was the way everybody understood gods in that day. That there were lots of them and you just needed to know a name in order to wrestle one down and get that God to pay attention to you and answer your prayer. And so in that culture, knowing a God's name, names were big in that day. I mean, names revealed something about yourself, not just gods, but people as well. Names carried meaning and the meaning mattered for that person, revealed something of your identity. Um, it also was a way to, to have some access. But then a lot of historians and scholars will say that, that in that culture, it also, when referring to a God's name, it was almost a way for a human being to have a sort of power over the God. Because if I needed something, I could call out to this God and this God had to pay attention to me. I could almost like grab them down to pay attention. And so Moses says, let's say I go back and the Israelites say, what's his name? Who, who sent you? What do I tell them? It's a fair question. So God responds to this question. Okay, if that happens... God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You can imagine Moses at this point going, I went to English class uh, and or cuneiform class or whatever it is that they, they spoke or wrote in, in Egypt or whatever. And I know that there has to be a direct object after that. So what is, what is the name, you know? Like, uh, you can't just, like, I am. Uh, that's not the end of the sentence, God. Like, like, did we cut out? Do we have a bad connection here? The burning bush not serving as a good medium translator for this? Like, I am What? Like, what are you in charge of? I know all these other gods. What are you in charge of? I am what? And God's like, just I am. That, that's good. That's all. I am. Done. You can imagine the Moses being like, is that all then? And God's like, well, yeah, I'm, if you want to add something else to that, then, uh, then say to the Israelites that the Lord... The God, we're going to come back to that, by the way. If you're following all along in your Bible, you'll notice in verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, and you'll see that word Lord, and it's written funny. It's a capital L, and then it's all caps O-R-D, but the O-R-D are a little bit smaller than the L, and that's important. So we'll come back to that. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob 
has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. What's your name? I am who I am. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is my name forever. From generation to generation, if you want to call on me, this is, this is my name. I uh, want to spend some time this morning doing some sketching and writing and uh, want to work on this. There have been more pages written about this name than you, any of us could possibly read in a lifetime. Uh, and a lot of different opinions and ideas because there's this name that's got a lot of mystery to it and a lot of wonder and a lot of, wow, this is bigger. Uh, we're not used to entering into and, and trying to figure out what's going on with a name like I am. And yet, this is the name that God gives Moses. I am who I am. I am who I am. In the Hebrew, um, this word transliterated is uh, Eya. Asher is the word who. I'm teaching you guys a little Hebrew this morning. Eya. Let's say it together, okay? Eya, Asher, Eya. Let's try it one more time. Eya, Asher, Eya. This is the Hebrew, and if we were to work on this just for a little bit, what we would find is that this word aye, this I am word, is the first person, uh, yeah, first person, singular. So it, it really is. It's like the verb to be, and it's declined like this, I am. And there are all sorts of opinions. God starts with I am who I am, and then he just drops off the who I am and just says I am. Let's just leave it there. And uh, scholars have all kinds of opinions. Religious people, theologians throughout the centuries have, have wrestled with and through the millennia have worked on what is God trying to communicate here. And a lot of them will come down to this idea that when God says I am, it's almost like he's saying, Moses, you know the God who says that he is the God of this, and this is the God of this, and this is the God of this. And of course, we all know that these gods are all idols. But God says, I just am. It's like God says, I am the ground of all reality. If you think about a God, I'm over all of it. I own all of the heavens and the earth and under the earth and I, I rule the crops and I rule fertility and I rule the sun and the mountains and the moon and the stars and all things I am. I cover it all. There's this, this phrase that's been bouncing around in my mind that, that I've been thinking about that the I am is God saying I am the source of and the ground of all reality. You think about that for just a minute. The source and the ground of all reality. God is. Uh, this is one of those 
that if you'll think about it for a long it's just kind of, God is before all things, that everything that exists does so because God calls it into being. God is, and everything that exists is a derivative from, is an act of creation of, is a result of this God who is love, who creates out of the overflow of his life. So this God creates all things, sustains all things, holds all things together. There is nothing that is apart from God willing it to be. Are you with me on that? God is the ground and the source of all reality. And yet, guys, that's not all there is that's going on here. Let me draw a couple of uh, lines down here. There is more going on when God reveals his name. He doesn't just say, I am who I am. He also, just in this little thing, uh, this word, eye, you know, it's first person singular, but it also has a tense. So, you know, past, present, future. This one is kind of a, a, one of those tricky tenses. It is the imperfect tense. Does anybody know what the imperfect tense means? Anybody? Come on up here. Let's give you a mic, Al. Uh, good, fantastic. The imperfect tense is incomplete. Ongoing. Incompleto. <laughs> Sorry, spelling. Uh, I was thinking of the word ongoing before I got done writing that. It's always kind of laying yourself out here to spell on in life, you know, in a message. So in, imperfect is incomplete, ongoing. So maybe in your Bibles, sometimes you'll see like a little asterisk that where, right next to where it says like, uh, I am who I am. It will make a note down in the margins and it will say, this can also be translated, I will be who I will be. This is all wrapped up in that same phrase. I am that I am is also I will be who I will be. So it's almost like God says to Moses, I am. I am the source of everything. I'm the ground of everything. Nothing has existence apart from me. And yet you can't ever put your hands all the way around me. Are you with me? Like there is more to me, Moses, than you will ever be able to wrestle down and put at your command. So I am, but I also will be who I will be. I will reveal myself to you as we go. You'll learn more about me tomorrow than you did the day before because this is how I am with you. And, and I'll be always consistent with my character. You'll never find something out about me that contradicts, but I will be who I will be. I am free. I am, I am, I am becoming in this sense. There's never a chance that you'll have to box me in or trace the outlines all the way around who I am. I am, but I will also be. You can't get a hold of me and wrestle me down. So maybe um, we could say, can't trace outlines. Or grasp. Uh, let's do that. In hand. God is beyond. Um, maybe we could say it like that. I am, but I am also beyond. We're not done yet. So God says, Eya, Asher, Eya, 
But then he says, he, he comes back and he says, the Lord added something else. The, say to them, the Lord, and you see that word, Lord, in your Bible. Uh, it looks like this, L-O-R-D. And that word right there is this, Yahweh. Yahweh. He says, this is my name. I'm Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God's given a different name here than he just gave Moses before. Say to them, I am, or I will be who I will be. And then he says, say to them, Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh is, is a word that was so holy for the Israelite people, they wouldn't even speak it. Uh, there, there was this command, do not use the Lord's name in vain, and they took that so seriously, and they were so like worried that they would accidentally do that, that they just decided we're never going to speak it. So nobody actually really even knows how to say the name. We just know that there are these consonants that are transliterated Y-H-W-H, so we guess that it's Yahweh. And scholars, there's all kinds of different opinions on this, but scholars uh, tend to agree that Yahweh is a word that sounds like Eye, and is probably um, one of the other declensions of that verb to be. And so where Eye is first person, hang with me here, uh, Yahweh is third person, singular. And so it would be he is. So it's like God says, when I'm referring to myself, I'm gonna say I am, but when you uh, wanna call on me, just say he is. Again, the ground and the source of all being. And yet, we're not done yet, right? God is still talking about his name, and he still, he, he wraps it all up and says, this is my name, but he's, he's gone all over the place. He also does one more thing. He's not just the God who is and who will be, but he says also that I am, what, the God of your ancestors. It's starting to come together. This picture starts to remind me as I was sketching out all these notes this week, started to remind me, God is trying to reveal himself to Moses, even though he's way beyond Moses, way beyond us. We'll never understand the full mystery of God, and yet he's trying to communicate something about himself. And it reminds me of this, uh, this verse in Revelation Revelation 1, 8, where Jesus actually says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. the ground of all being who was and who is and who is to come. There's a, this concept that we worked on last week that God was a fortress. 
And, and I kind of think of a fortress as being something that covers over you, right? Like you think of a, court, a fortress as like, like going into a cave and being sheltered, the refuge there, right? And, and so you've got this, this idea that God who is uh, before and who is and who always will be, we learn is a shelter for us, is a covering for us, is a is a refuge, is a fortress, is a, a, a strength, a bulwark. And, and we learn that. Be still and know that I am God. I'm that kind of God. And then today we learn that God is the ground of all reality, the source. And you get this idea that, that you and me, we live and we move and we have our being in the reality of this God. In fact, this is, this is actually what Paul says in Acts when he's talking to the Greek people who also had lots of gods. He said, you've got lots of gods and you call them this and this and this, but there's one that you call an unnamed God. And this God essentially says, this God is the source of everything. And he's always close to us. He's never far from us. In fact, we live in him and we move in him and we have our being in him. I, I realize that uh, a lot of these concepts are kind of philosophical, you know, you're like, uh, sounds like a philosophy textbook merged with an lit English literature class and like, I would never want to go through that again if I, if I ever had to, but li listen, um, something that's been really interesting to me about this picture as we kind of sketch things out is that the name of God doesn't come to us in a philosophy textbook. It doesn't come to us in the middle of, you know, kind of literature and a sentence diagram, even though we can do some of these things with it. It comes to us in the middle of a story. And I think that the story tells us as much about God as all of these kinds of things tell us about the character and the nature of God. In the story, in the story of Moses and the burning bush and the whole of the Exodus, we find out so much about this God. We find out that the God who is the source and the ground of all reality, and, and I understand if you're thinking like Star Wars and force and like new age spirituality, God's connected to everything and we all live and move and have our being in him and all that kind of stuff. And, and I get that and there's a part of that that almost goes on. And yet we also find that God isn't this just impersonal force. In the story, we find out that God is also intensely personal and can be known in this way. So we find out that God is a God who listens to his people. Now think about that. If the source and the ground of all reality listens to you, God hears the cries of his people when they start to cry out to him when they're suffering. This God is moved by that. The source of all reality is moved when his people suffer. 
He's not just moved, he's moved to do something about it. And so he moves into action. And this God calls and covenants with people and remembers those covenants and is faithful to those covenants. And then he goes and finds people who will partner with him to make this new reality, to to deliver the people, to work with him for his kingdom purposes. He calls these people to join in and be a partner with him. And this God stretches people and grows people. This God has the power to create new life and a new reality for his people. This God, who is the source and ground of all things, makes himself knowable in a sense to us so that we could potentially be still and know the I am. This God also, in the midst of this story, pledges several times to be with his people. To be with what you find as you read through the scriptures is this, this promise, I will be with you, is actually one of the central promises in the Bible. And God, over and over again, pledges himself, the source and ground of reality, to be with his people, to be with his people, to be with his people. And even when the people who said, yeah, we want to be with you as well, walked away, and stepped out of that relationship, even when the people ran in the opposite direction, even when the people said, we don't want to live and move and have our being in you, and, and if that were even possible, and they, they strong-armed God, God continued, I will be with you, I want to be with you, I, I, I want to give you life, I, I know. And so God, to the point where, guys, he took on flesh to come and be among us, and revealed himself to the point, I will be who I will be, to the point where he took on flesh and came and moved in and, 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 and suffered among us so that people could see him in the eyes and could hear his voice and touch him. In fact, in the letter of 1 John, they'd say, can you believe this? We've heard him with our own ears. We've seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him with our own hands. And now we're here to tell you about that. The I am has made himself knowable to us. And then this I am who is the source and ground of everything and all that exists, gave that up and ceased on the cross so that we could be brought back into life, so that we could find our place in the place where we were created to be with our ground on his reality and sheltered under his name. God is with us. Be still and know, he says, that I am. He is. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we recognize this morning that there's too much about who you are to absorb, that there's no way we could fill in all the blank spaces or trace out all the outlines of who you are. You are God overall. There is no other. God, we come to you this morning and and we want to pledge to you again that we love you that we want to live our lives in harmony with who you are and how you've created things to be. God, we, uh, we pray that you would help it to sink in here as we respond in song, the, 
depth of your love for us. We know that in your word, John tells us again that, that you are love. And God, we, we know that we are a product, our life, our life in you, the grace and forgiveness that you've given us, the, the hope of eternity is all a product of your love for us. And so God, as we stand in a moment, may you help us to stand and sing on the ground of your reality. Recognize that the source of all of life and our life is in you and by your spirit. And would you find us just in this sanctuary sheltered in and, and in communion with your spirit today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Would you stand together? We're gonna, we're gonna sing a song called The Stand uh, in response that's really, I think, got some interesting things that tie into what we've been talking about and, and I hope that it will be meaningful for you. While we do that, if you came prepared to give in the offering, we've got the basket up here. And uh, you can do that or, or pull out your phone app and, and give as an act of worship uh, today as we are the gathered people of God. We give and we sing and we rejoice in the God who is the ground and source of all things giving life to us as well um, and giving himself to us. So let's sing together.